It's time now for After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM. Good morning and uh, welcome to the Monday edition of After 9 on CFIS 93.1. My name is uh, Stuart Parker. I'm your Monday host. And uh, today's edition of the show, we have uh, two guests uh, on the line. Um, We have uh, Bill Thielman, uh, one of the province's uh, best-known political strategists and commentators, uh, one of the authors of uh, the ND one successful re-election effort in BC back in 1996. Later in the show, we're going to have Scott Davis, uh, who's an alternative energy expert and author. Um, And we're going to try and join these interviews by talking about some energy policy near the middle of the show. But first of all, I want to welcome Bill on the program and uh, thank him for joining us on CFIS. Thanks very much, Stuart. Happy to be here. All right. Now, um, uh, normally, uh, you're being asked big picture questions about uh, about elections at the provincial or federal level. I wanted to start by going a little bit parochial. You and I have been active politically since the 90s. And back in the 90s, Prince George was an NDP town. It had two NDP members of the legislature. Uh, it had an NDP MP, and um, it uh, and Prince George and Kamloops were thought to be bellwether ridings. That whichever way Prince George, Kamloops, the other sort of industrial centers in the interior went, that was the way British Columbia was going to go. But Things have changed quite a bit since then. And federally here, the NDP has been defeated now. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine elections in a row. Um, provincially, uh, it's, uh, it's a similar story. What's happened to, uh, do you think, that's making um, uh, the party that was mine for quite a while, still your party. What's making the NDP struggle up here, do you figure? Well, my <clears throat> glib answer would be the pine beetle, but uh, my more expanded answer would be, I think what we're seeing, Stuart, is the hollowing out of the resource extraction-based economy that saw the rise of the IWA and uh, uh, subsequently emerged with the steelworkers that saw uh, a lot of blue-collar jobs in the resource extraction industry uh, dry up and disappear. And I think what we have uh, left behind is more of a small business community and a large business community in some areas, but not with those kind of large uh, as numbers of blue-collar workers who were the uh, and remain the backbone of the NDP. And I think that's what the sing- probably the single biggest factor there. So, um, uh, so that's obviously that's a real challenge. Um, how would um, how would you advise um, uh, people who? Uh, how would you advise candidates who used to rely on that vote to adapt to the new environment that we have in the interior in the north? Well, I think it's going to be a. a how long is your show? Uh, I think that's quite the challenge for uh, it, the same as it would be for any riding where the demographics have changed substantially. I think that obviously uh, you have to run a very local campaign. I think that's one of the challenges in this day and age, is, uh, as we've seen with this federal election. Uh, these are very national campaigns and 
provincial campaigns are indeed very provincial. Uh, I think it was noted during the last election campaign in 2017 that the Premier had barely ventured outside of the 604 and uh, island area on campaigning, and uh, as a result, we, not as a result, but partly uh, perhaps as a result, we only have four rural or semi-rural MLAs in the entire NDP caucus for the first time, the lowest number probably ever. So I think we have a, the NDP has a real challenge there to figure out what, what they need to do. Um, Contrary-wise, you can flip that on its head and say, what do the B.C. Liberals need to do to, to win back more urban seats, which is uh, has been critical to their success in the past and uh, and also why they've uh, failed to be in power right now. And the, the rise of the Green Party is another issue which has to be factored in, as well as, uh, as the possibility of other parties on a rural basis rising. Um, we're, we're watching um, only in Quebec so far, but really in serious way, but... The People's Party of Canada being a right-wing populist alternative to those left-wingers, the Conservative Party of Andrew Scheer. <laughs> yeah, that's a that's a crazy moment, right? When we uh, we realize that the Canadian political spectrum has um, has shifted that much. Now, um, one of the uh, uh, so talking about the way that we have a national narrative and that that's really driving the campaign. Obviously, the issue that's been driving the campaign over the past several days has been Justin Trudeau's desire to get dressed up, Uh, his love of costumes that piss people off. And so um, I'm, I'm wondering... How do you see that as playing out for the different parties uh, nationally? Um, Who's gaining, who's losing as uh, the focus continues to be on uh, the Trudeau blackface performances? Well, let me uh, say a couple things on that. First of all, it's it's been a, a significant boost to NDP leader Jagmeet Singh because he was able to, obviously, it directly affects him. Uh, the prime minister wearing a turban and painting his face, I mean, not just brown, but black, really, if you look at the photos, uh, is, uh, is an amazing affront to people who actually wear a turban as part of their religion and, and were born with, a, uh, uh, with darkened skin. So this is uh, at a time when the, his party was expected to completely uh, tank. I, I think that this has been uh, very, in a, in a negative uh, a negative action has been a very positive for the NDP campaign. I think Jagmeet Singh has been uh, excellent in responding to this. He's not over the top. He hasn't uh, gone crazy over it, but I, I think people have been impressed with the way he's handled this, with the the restraint and compassion he's shown, and also that he's relating it to other people. And I think one of the things uh, in our predominantly Caucasian-dominated media um, and our society that a lot of people are saying, eh, you know, it's Halloween, it's a costume, it's a dress-up, it's no big deal. Um, those aren't people who haven't got jobs because of the color of skin. Those aren't people who have had uh, horrible names called to them in uh, from elementary school uh, right up to university or faced uh, incidents at night in a bar or anything like that. That This is a, uh, I mean, it, not, that Pierre, or, uh, Justin Trudeau is not responsible for that, but he is completely and utterly uh, appears to be ignorant of the entire history of blackface in, uh, in the southern United States and in all the United States and, and its tragic history. So uh, for them, for the conservatives, it's also a lifeline that's uh, allowed them to focus the attack on Mr. Trudeau when they have a plethora of dubious, questionable, and offensive candidates in their own ranks, and it silenced the Liberal war room to go after those people in uh, in the Conservative Party, who there's probably quite a few more. 
<clears throat> the Green Party, I mean, it started with a very bad week, uh, and it really has seemed to be a little irrelevant for the most part on this issue. Uh, and for the Bloc Québécois, it ironically probably is a bit of a boost because it uh, it focuses again on uh, the uh, the religious uh, religious wear garb wear uh, legislation which it passed to uh, keep people who wear turbans out of the public service. So you know, in a kind of a sick way, I think it, maybe it helps them as well. Yeah, well, we've certainly seen that um, the block numbers are the only numbers that we can really uh, take a beat on in the polls as having clearly risen in the last week. Everybody else's numbers just look like noise. They seem to be going up, then they seem to be going down. I personally have watched people leap onto the liberal bandwagon because of the black pace performances. That has really shocked me. Uh, and often it's associated with exactly the kind of mischaracterization that you were talking about, where people imply that Trudeau was a student, not a teacher, that he did it for Halloween or some other event, and not that he was at the event, um, the Arabian Nights event, as part of his paid job as a high school teacher, that he was there in his professional capacity working with students. So I noticed that a lot of the people who seem to be leaping onto the liberal bandwagon are people who are, you know, making remarks like it's a media conspiracy to destroy white people's appreciation of Halloween and all this other strangeness. Um, in this day and age, when we have um, this whole issue of fake news, um, how much is the how much is the narrative about something like this even connected to what's happened? Well, it's an interesting question, and one thing I did uh, hope we might talk about, maybe I'll just interject it here, is uh, I severely warn uh, your listeners and people who read what I have to say or hear what I have to say against following what I what's known as aggregator polls. We've seen it uh, the CBC's poll tracker. There's a few other ones. And uh, so in terms of the premise of your question is that, that some people have got on the bandwagon and some people have dropped off of it. It's not really clear what's happened. I think when we look at what I would call the more serious and respected pollsters who have a track record, uh, what we are seeing is, is it, and I know this instinctively uh, as a political campaigner, this definitely hurt the liberals. There's no question. They were off, if, no, if only for the reason they've been off message for three, four days, where they wanted to be talking about their campaign the ideas they have to win votes, they have it all carefully scripted out, as all parties do, and all they've been doing is dealing with blackface, brownface, what's the next one, etc. So just from that alone, it's got to hurt. But uh, pollsters like Ipsos Angus Reid, who I do respect, uh, and, and some others, um, in these poll aggregators get dumped in with, frankly, free pollsters who dump stuff out to the media to try and get clients, and their stuff is not well done. And uh, you'll recall, uh, and I didn't, I'm not intentionally bringing this up for this reason, but you'll recall from the referendum in 2018 on, on proportional representation that we had two major pollsters uh, who do a lot of stuff for the media say it's too close to call. And privately, we had our pollster, Ipsos, who had a lot of respect for um, polling, and they told us we should be at 58, 59% or so. And of course, it ended up we were 61 so when pollsters say it's too close to call in a yes-no vote, uh, where there's only two questions, did you vote this way or that way, and did you vote at all, and getting it wrong by 11% saying we can't figure it out, I have really grave doubts about a lot of the polling firms in this election because 
that then now we're getting into ridings and regional splits and all the other things. And some of these pollsters are absolutely shamefacedly saying uh, they can do seat count projections as well. And it's just absolutely crazy. So I would caution anyone who thinks the liberals have somehow got through this yet. Because I don't think they have at all. Yeah, I was mainly looking at the Nanos overnights because they were the only uh, daily thing. And Nanos has got a reasonably long track record. I absolutely agree. The polling aggregators and the forecasters, um, I mean, the methodology that Eric Grenier uses for his polling aggregator, I used in a study in 2001 to predict, um, you know, the defeat of the provincial NDP. Like, this is not uh, this is not Nate Silver level stuff to the extent that Silver's even trustworthy after predicting a Hillary Clinton win. So, yeah, I think it's a it's an important warning. It's a good thing to do. Now, the um, uh, now one of the mysteries of this election, right, is the possible rise of the Greens, certainly a surge in the polls at the beginning of the election, lots more media coverage of the Greens as a result. Um, what's your take on how they've been doing at holding on to all this new support they started with? I think that uh, of all the four leaders, Elizabeth May had the worst week to start. This is, of course, before the blackface thing came out. Um, because, uh, you know, it's a kind of interesting conundrum. You want more attention. You say you can't get a break. You don't get enough media. That's why you're the fourth or fifth place party. And then when you get that attention, you, clamp, you complain the media are being mean to you because they're looking at your candidates with a fine-tooth comb, which they do with the other parties because they are actually in contention in a lot of seats. And uh, and things kind of fell apart. I mean, you know, I, I did not know that 9-11 was an inside job until I started seeing uh, information about Green Party candidates. I did not know that uh, the Nazis put fluorides in prison camp during the Second World War uh, <laughs> until uh, the candidate, in, one of the candidates, now former candidate in Winnipeg, uh, posted it on Facebook. And, and uh, you know, I did not know that the moon landing was faked. So, you know... If you want to play in the big leagues, you better have big league players. And if you've got, you know, single-A minor short-season baseball players who expect to play in the majors at the level they play at, you're going to have a big problem. Uh, we had, we, so we've had two or three, well, we had a few candidates gone already, but two or three of them really uh, dubious uh, qualities. And, and others are still, <clears throat> and we also had the fiasco with the New Brunswick uh, NDP members, uh, some of whom uh, clearly joined the Greens and others uh, clearly were completely blindsided by an announcement that they had joined the Greens and, and hadn't at all. And so these kind of things, again, throw you off your message. And uh, I think on the plus side for Elizabeth May and, and the candidates, um, uh, you know, the the climate issue has never been bigger. Uh, I'm sure Elizabeth May is secretly praying for a typhoon to hit uh, several parts of Canada just before the election, which would help. Um, I'm saying that jokingly. And uh, and so we'll see what happens. And, you know, she's a good debater, but I did watch the debates. I'm not sure if you did on um, City TV and McLean's debate. And uh, I, I have to say, I try and be objective. I just found her annoying in the debates, um, kind of, you know, pedantically lecturing everybody else. And if she does that in the other two or three debates, I'm not sure that will help her. Yeah, the Al Gore problem where you have a, um, yes, where somebody's using their greater knowledge and that should be an effective tactic, but it isn't always. And of course, there's a gender politics to that as well with um, one candidate being female, smaller, much older, different tone of voice. 
And uh, but I wanted to ask, I think people often sort of focus on the, um, you know, the cannon fodder that you march out there in a lot of ridings when you're Green Party leader. And uh, goodness knows I did a bunch of that in 1996. But fortunately for me, I wasn't relevant enough for you to bother looking up who these people were back in the day. But um, I'm more interested really in the way the Greens will take an issue and talk and, and attempt to reframe it outside of the framing it's had. And I'll, I'll give you two examples. One is the abortion issue, where May has said she would fire the two um, anti-abortion candidates. That still hasn't happened after more than a week since her announcement. And her position is that the abortion debate should be reopened in Parliament but that no Green would vote to limit choice on abortion. And this seems really strange. Like, the framing of the issue usually is that if you're pro-choice, you don't want Parliament debating nationalizing anybody's uterus. Similarly, she gave this uh, announcement on drug decriminalization, and during the announcement, stated that once Canada got some of its uh, opiate problems under control, some of the drugs would be recriminalized. And again, this is never a thing I, I've heard from anybody else. Um, obviously, there are pluses and minuses to doing this, but what do you make of these sort of distinctive green framings? Well, I think it's a, obviously a, an opportunity to have your cake and eat it, too. Uh, it, particularly on the, the drug thing, it's a ludicrous position. I, I mean, I just, you know, yeah, all we have to do is take a few steps and then in a couple of years we'll have the drug thing beat and then we'll be back, we can go back to prohibition. I mean, that's just never happened anywhere. And we know there are countries like Portugal who have gone down this road and they've had quite a bit of success. I, I mean, it's the same thing on the abortion issue and other other issues. Uh, uh, BDS uh, on Israel, uh, uh, boycott, divestment, sanction Israel, uh, which has been a huge issue within the Green Party, as you know. Um, you cannot uh, have a caucus where nobody is, and I use the terms in quotes, whipped. No one is told how to vote. They don't have to vote the party line. They don't have to do anything. And then say, we have solid positions. Because you don't. You simply don't. You, you can either be uh, a party with uh, a loose collection of, of crazy characters who who have a few ideas about something, but by and large you have no real party policy or plan, and if you did, you wouldn't stick to it because everybody's their own person. If their constituency says, hey, do this or do that, or their conscience does, and they do something else, and say we won't have any anti-abortion candidates, we won't have any BDS candidates, uh, we're going to do this on drugs, we're going to do that on whatever, when there's there's absolutely zero platform that anyone can really hold you to because, hey, uh, once you get elected, you can do whatever the hell you want. Yeah, that, uh, that's a curious feature. So we're going to go to our first break. When we come back, I uh, want to talk about how affordability issues are being put forward in the election uh, by the three traditional parties and um, how, that's, uh, how that's going to uh, shape people's votes. So uh, we're going to break now. Uh, we're on the air with uh, Bill Thielman, and we'll be back with him shortly. This is After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM. All right, welcome back to the Monday edition of After 9. I'm your host, Stuart Parker. We're on with uh, political uh, analyst uh, Bill Thielman uh, talking about uh, the uh, federal election. Now, 
just uh, taking us into the, the next part, I want to talk a bit about, um, in Can- people are starting to observe that in Canada, we in some ways um, are one of the last places that's still doing politics like it's the 90s. We still have a liberal party and our social democratic party, the NDP, hasn't collapsed and been replaced with a further left party, as has happened in a number of places like Greece or Spain. Um, It also hasn't gone through a massive volatile process of renewal and radicalization like uh, the Labour Party has in England. So in many ways, um, we're not, uh, it seems like we're not in the same world where somebody like Bernie Sanders is coming forward with really ambitious plans of nationalization and huge scale government spending on the left. Um, instead, we, we seem to be the, uh, the last of the 20th century liberal democracies. And this has placed, this has created some problems, I think, for all three of the main parties in the election that they don't know whether to present themselves as one of these new style parties. The Tories don't know whether to present themselves as a Trump style party or an unambitious Harper style incrementalist party. The NDP struggles to know whether to present itself as Bernie Sanders campaign north or again as the sort of incrementalist pocketbook populism that somebody like Jack Layton was so successful with. So right now, one of the ways this is showing up is the debate about um, cell phone plans and how expensive they are. So I'm curious both about your observations on that general topic and how it's shaking down in the debate around cell phone costs and the debate about middle-class tax cuts. Well, God, if I hear the word middle class again, I'll puke. But I'll just puke. But um, then we'll know the '90s is over in Canada. Well, well, but here, here's the thing, Stuart. In my view, I actually think the Americans are back in the '70s in terms of the the politic, and and the Brits. I mean, Jeremy Corbyn, in my view, is a disaster. Although I I, I grant that the party has picked up a lot of uh, new members, but I'm not sure if they joined the right party. Um, I, I think uh, quite, uh, you know, I mean, and it looks at this moment, it looks like Boris Johnson could win a hefty majority uh, with his ridiculous buffoonery and Trumpian politics. But I, I think what we're seeing in the States is a, an American Democratic Party that, uh, of course, is not social democratic at all, um, but has elements of it within it, uh, that is almost begging itself to lose the next election against the single worst president. And that is really saying something. Uh, probably the, the, the uh, American people have ever seen, certainly in recent history, and potentially worse, worse than Nixon. Oh, i, I got to disagree with you there with respect to the matchup numbers, right? The furthest left candidates have the highest matchup numbers against Trump, not the lowest matchup numbers against Trump. Bernie Sanders is the most popular politician in America. And but I'm just I'm more curious about how this shakes down here. What do you think is going to resonate with people more? This um these sort of small scale affordability measures like twenty-five percent reduction in the cost of your cell phone plan or really ambitious stuff that talks about major wealth redistribution. I think people will always go for the quick hit and uh I can, it's funny, because I was thinking about this the other day, I can remember having dinner with Jack Layton, uh, uh, just him and I, in about 2010, and I called our server over, and I said, 
tell me about your cell phone bills. And, and she just railed about cell phone bills, and Jack's eyes kind of bugged out. Uh, and, you know, it's an issue that's been around for a while. They, the Liberals just tried to steal it off of the NDP in the last two days. Um, I, I don't think people trust politicians to do anything major anywhere, anything large-scale. They, they have grave doubts about it. And I think, you know, I think it's smart uh, pocketbook politics for any of the parties to talk about things that actually seem achievable and doable versus grandiose schemes. I mean, I, I'm totally in favor of national pharmacare. I, I hope people will, will see that as a positive thing. But I, uh, you know, I have more inclination. I think they might actually do something to reduce my cell phone bill by 10 bucks a month. Even though, as uh, I think the NDP has pointed out, uh, Trudeau met with, or the Liberals met with cell phone company lobbyists 550 times in the last four years. So I have some doubts that they're the ones who are going to do it, just like on a lot of other things. But I think that, uh, you know, we're, we're not talking about uh, revolutionary change. We're talking about evolutionary change at the moment. And I don't, you know, I mean, for all of Obama, for example, looking stateside, uh, of his great promise and the excitement of having the first African-American president, Obama didn't really do an awful lot of major stuff. He tried to get the health care thing through uh, a couple of things, but he also, you know, has been using drones to assassinate American enemies. He used, uh, a whole, he did a whole bunch of stuff that actually, I think he locked up more people at the border than Trump has at the border with Mexico. So it's, it, there, there hasn't been any sort of great leap forward, uh, pardon the pun, uh, use a little Maoist terms here, but uh, from any, uh, anyone in the States and, I'm, I'm not seeing that here in this election, for sure. So, um, obviously, though, one of the things about the climate issue, which is never pulled higher, is um, this is not an incremental change issue. Scientists are telling us that change must be rapid and uh, it must be pretty significant. Uh, we get figures ranging from uh, conservative estimates saying we need massive changes to our energy mix in the next 11 years. Other scientists are saying 18 months. Um, and, uh, and so I'm curious about how how all this climate voting is reconciled with people being unambitious in terms of what they think government can allow us to do together. Well, um, one thing I've pointed out to a few people, and your listeners may be interested in, in your region there, because CKNW did a weird thing in uh, CKNW Radio. Uh, many A couple months ago, they started running a thing called um, nominate, I can't remember exactly, uh, give us your gas. Uh, they nominate a worthy person to get a $100 gas card to pay for their gasoline because they may be driving cancer patients to the hospital or doing good deeds or helping out an elderly person. And companies, a company sponsored this. It has now been going on for three or four months. It has become a regular feature. CKNW doesn't put the money in. It's all individual businesses or individuals throwing the money in. And each story is, is really quite heartwarming. And um, I'm sitting there as I'm listening to it thinking, Andrew Shearer is a genius, and his people are geniuses to talk about the carbon tax. Because on a macro level, people do understand uh, weather changes, climate problems, storms, uh, hurricanes, typhoons, um, all, of, all of these uh, heavy rains, all these kind of things that are going on. And yet, on a local level, it's, hmm, where can I buy the cheapest gas? I mean, Dan McTeague, McTeague the former liberal MP who advises people through GasBuddy.com, where to find the cheapest gas. 
has never been busier. Well, and absolutely, so because this- we understand that the climate crisis can't be addressed through individual consumer choice. Otherwise, it would already have been dealt with. Uh, the... Uh, Uh, So I think that uh, I don't think that anybody in this election is selling the idea that individual consumer choice and changes in personal consumption habits will get us there. There are parties that say the state needs to take major action and there are parties saying, are we sure this science is even real? And then we have the Liberal Party that's trying to pander to both groups. And uh, that's a bit of a challenge. Now, I um, I wanted to go on a slightly different note, but, you know, I've only had this show a month and a half. I'm not a genius at timing. So, Bill, I, I've got to bid you goodbye. Thank you very much for coming on. It, it's been my pleasure, Stuart, and all the best. And it'll be a fascinating election to watch uh, all over the country. All right. We'll, we'll head to our break now. And after the break, Scott Davis. Listening to After Nine on ninety three point one CFIS FM. All right. Well, we're back on uh, After Nine uh, Monday edition. I'm your host Stuart Parker. Uh, we just finished up with uh, me uh, disagreeing with Bill Tillman, as is our thing. Uh, I was talking. We were talking with Bill about um, the way. Uh, Uh, the way climate voters, uh, how influential they'll be, how ambitious uh, they want government programs to address climate change to be. And uh, now we have our second guest. Uh, Scott Davis is... um, uh, has been an activist for alternative energy for uh, nearly half a century. He um, has constructed uh, alternative energy systems uh, for um, local governments, uh, indigenous band governments, and private individuals, uh, including himself, author of two books on microhydro, the area of alternative power that he is most expert at, and uh, founding president of the BC Friends of Alternative Energy. So, uh, Scott, thank you for coming on the program. Oh, nice to be here, Stuart. Okay, so um, let's uh, let's get into uh, what I was discussing um, uh, with uh, with Bill. You uh, now, obviously, the question of climate change has been important in the election. People have announced they have plans for dealing with it. But a lot of your work has to do with the practicality of building energy systems that don't contribute to the climate crisis. From your perspective, do you think there's been a decent discussion of how to implement those climate goals and how to talk about energy systems in this campaign? Well, no, but I mean, that's more or less par, par, par for the course. Um, let me see, where, where would I begin? Well, well, an adequate discussion would start with assessing the scope of the problem. Like, is it really going to be that hard to transition to clean energy? Because it certainly wasn't my experience uh, as a project developer that it was very hard to, or lengthy to transition into a renewable energy uh, world, um, mostly uh, our uh, government seems to be lacking the will. Right. So, um, uh, what do you, um, 
so transitioning to uh, renewable energy, so what kinds of uh, energy projects should be going ahead to replace uh, fossil fuels in our energy mix? Well, that's an interesting question. Um, in, uh, there's, uh, the, uh, the main trouble with renewable energy is that it's really site-specific and decentralized. These seem like good things, but also, but it, um, it also makes it difficult to give a single straight answer to a general question. Right. So, uh, okay, let's uh, let's imagine you're up in uh, our part of the world here in uh, in Prince George. We've got um, uh, the Robson Valley to the east with the Fraser River headwaters. We have um, we had a pretty rainy year this year. Um, but, uh, you know, in a city like Prince George, about 70,000 people, um, uh, what are some of the things that, uh, that we could be doing that would, uh, reduce our, uh, our energy impacts? Well, uh, the cheapest and easiest thing to do is to curb waste. Um, you know, basic engineering principles. I mean, Canadians use about double what everyone else uses in terms of electricity, so uh, um, moving uh, Canadian practice over to more European standards uh, would be, without a doubt, the cheapest, or, well, not the fastest, but the cheapest uh, thing to do usually is to, uh, as I say, is to promote uh, efficiency in a realistic fashion. Right. So um, now we um now of course we've got a giant energy uh we, we're surrounded by giant energy projects right now and uh we've got uh people driving up from uh from prince george working on uh the site c dam near chatwind um and uh some people describe um, Site C as um, clean hydroelectric power. Um, what's your take on uh, on Site C as a project? Wow, it's it's um, it's everything possibly wrong with Canadian energy policy for the last few centuries. Really, is pretty much encapsulated in in Site C. I mean. Uh, there's, you know, it's a giant project in the middle of nowhere, destroying um, useful ground and taking up uh, First Nations territory. There's no particular market uh, for the uh, power that's already produced. Um, oh, kind of on and on. Actually, we don't need more mega projects. Site as I understand it, was to uh, compress natural gas for the LNG. Industry. That's the only way that it could have been justified. Because, of course, we produce lots of electricity and waste lots. So, uh, so this is uh, so you would view Site C as not meeting domestic power needs at all. This is simply part of the larger uh, Kitimat and wood fiber LNG projects. Some some people would say that um, um, if you were to assess the creation of a new reservoir in terms of greenhouse gases. Are we ahead or behind? Do we generate more greenhouse gases or do we, um, or does this clean power over time uh, help us to reduce it? Uh, you know, that's very interesting because uh, uh, water power is, is the best example of, of uh, the analysis of sites uh, according to scale as opposed to source. 
Um, uh, I have endless experience of turning small uh, amounts of water into usable amounts of electricity on one hand and more or less no environmental impact, and yet large hydroelectric dams are notoriously destructive. Uh, more in the south, uh, where, the, where you're drowning jungle, there's often even huge carbon, uh, carbon dioxide output from, you know, drowned vegetation behind reservoirs and so on. Right. So um, we're going to pick up more on this uh, on this question uh, after our uh, after our short break. And when we come back, we'll be uh, looking at that question of scale in energy and uh, how we can reframe our debate. It's after nine on ninety three point one CFIS FM. All right. Well, uh, uh, we're back on uh, After Nine with uh, Scott Davis, uh, the uh, author of Microhydro, Clean Power from Water, and Serious Microhydro, Water Power Solutions from the Experts. Now, um, you've helped to put together a lot of um, local microhydro projects around the province, and during the Campbell government in BC, there was this program called uh, Run of the River, where um, projects perhaps a little larger than the ones you were doing, but a lot of uh, independent power production projects of various sizes uh, were integrated into our hydroelectric grid. And the Horgan government has now canceled nearly all of those contracts with um, local small-scale electricity providers. Um, what's your take on why they've done this, and what's the impact of that going to be? Well, you know, it's kind of a, uh, it's one of these interesting uh, uh, questions. Now, um, what they call the small hydro projects and so on were uh, uh, kind of disastrously misconceived anyway. Uh, and so I guess canceling the contracts is kind of, kind of trying to undo a, uh, a previous mistake. Um, uh, but I guess, uh, but, you know, if it, if it turns to Site C instead, then you're sort of compounding one mistake with another mistake. Right. So these uh, these projects, why were they so ill-conceived? What went wrong there when uh, Campbell was handing out all these licenses? Wasn't Campbell the one that stole the BC Rail? Yeah, that's right. Okay, well, um, <laughs> uh, uh, energy, energy uh, uh, policy in Canada and BC in particular is, is uh, um, heavily colonialized and pretty much doomed to be wrong forever. Um, so these uh, projects, I mean, uh, it's not clear that they uh, are as productive or as impact-free as advertised. Oh, I see. So um, these are larger projects that were producing some of the adverse impacts that large-scale hydro does? And it's always a lot of construction. There's the issue of, uh, uh, you know, of uh, water rights. And so on, and, uh, you know, compared to, you know, balancing off fish and power and stuff like that. They have many of the same problems. They're, they're hardly, I mean, small uh, is a relative term. It's a giant pipeline project miles long out in the, out in the boonies and so on. Uh, the, main, the main thing is 
that generating energy is just not required. We have too much energy that's being sold more or less at a loss to us, and uh, we could uh, generate electricity by uh, uh, ceasing wasting uh, by reasonable incentives, like you know, raising the electricity prices to European levels or whatever. Right. Well, that um, this, I guess, brings us to um, a uh, to a major question in uh, um, in public policy, which is that right now, although consumers' electricity is subsidized, um, the amount of money charged to large industries and corporations is more heavily subsidized, and um, so. You'd um, so if we started selling energy to the industrial sector at cost, um, how might that shake out? Well, I mean, the the trouble with the subsidy plan is that it props up business plans that are weak, and you know there might be some industries that uh, require. Uh, um, power to be sold at a loss to them for them to function. It, it may may indeed be that there would be some um, uh, some industrial uh, uh, fallout uh, fallout from this, but the advantages would be enormous. Uh, the trouble with low prices generally is that they encourage waste and discourage innovation. Right. So. Um this uh, this bring if I can uh, if I can cycle back a little bit to the federal election, um, Andrew Shear is suggesting pretty much the opposite of this that um, high energy consumption industries um, should uh, receive direct government subsidies in order to green up their power. Um, what do you uh, what do you make of that scheme? Oh yeah, more of the same. Um, uh, we had this uh, nonprofit in the end of my career because I found that the problems facing renewable energy are not technical in nature. Uh, it's like the climate change business; not really a technical issue. It's um, uh, political uh, and I don't know psychiatric uh, <laughs> issue. Uh, uh, because I mean, uh, if you have to. Uh, the thing about subsidizing, uh, as I say, is that it just means that things are more wasteful and, and uh, uh, innovation is, is suppressed. So I would say it's just as backward as ever. So, um, I mean, this is often not how people think about the Conservative Party of Canada as encouraging subsidies and waste and opposing innovation, opposing businesses running lean. And I think it's really important that we recognize that whatever 20th century conservatism offered people, today's conservatism is very much about waste and handouts and begging and going cap in hand uh, to government. It's just that uh, the things that are doing that are corporations and not individuals. So um, I think it's, uh, I think for many listeners, they are probably finding it a little refreshing that somebody in the alternative energy sector is using words that used to be associated 
with ideas of entrepreneurship and uh, free enterprise that might be a little shocking. So um, we're going to head to a break now. And when we come back, uh, I'm going to talk about one of your one of my favorite quotes of yours. You're asked, um, how should we approach climate change a few years ago? And your response was brace for impact. So let's talk about that after the break. This is After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM. Well, we're back uh, for the final segment of the Monday edition of After 9. I'm Stuart Parker, and I'm interviewing uh, Scott Davis, uh, author and activist for Micro Hydro. Uh, and we're sort of moving away from some of the smaller energy business questions and uh, looking at... Um, I think some bigger questions around uh, the climate crisis. This is an issue you and I have been talking about for 30 years now. And um, even uh, with uh, Bill Thielman, who, uh, you know, is a big supporter of uh, Site C and the LNG plants, Bill is acknowledging that we're going to be getting more extreme weather here. Um, a lot of people develop... Um, sort of survivalist type plans. Some of the people who buy your books, right, imagine that climate change is going to break down our governments, break down our economic order, and um, they start thinking about how to generate their own power, how to raise their own food, things like that in the context of the climate crisis. What do you say to people who are buying your books for those reasons or seeking advice about how to do that? Well, unfortunately, I just don't think it's such a bad idea. Um, uh, as with the business, uh, as with my, what I saw with my business, I see that the barriers to uh, climate change mitigation uh, and so on aren't really technical in nature, uh, but they're uh, social and uh, oh. justice uh, issues, like the habit of selling energy below cost to polluters and, and so on. So um, I believe that if climate change were a technical issue, that it could be handled in a few years. I certainly never spent very long transitioning people from fossil fuels to renewable energy. I mean, how long does it take to screw on solar panels on the roof of their house? Just not that long, a few weeks. Um, but uh, the actual will to do anything about it is is totally missing from uh, you know basically from left and right as well. Um, so uh, because it's a because it's a, a social political will question, uh, I don't have a lot of confidence that we'll be able to deal with it. Yeah, it seems like um, I mean the way I describe. Uh... Uh, so recently I, I got quoted in this new book, The Uninhabitable Earth, because it was trying to describe the position of somebody like John Horgan or George Heyman, who know perfectly well what climate change is going to do and are still bigging, building the highest emission mega project in the history of British Columbia with these LNG plants. And one of the, the, the term that came out is climate nihilism that um, there's this sense that uh, people are going, well, who cares? We're outside the moral order. 
Um, so uh, let's just do this uh, and refuse to associate it with morality. Or you have um, what some people have called the sort of climate arsonist position of uh, Bolsonaro in Brazil or Trump in the United States, where it's become a moral good to accelerate climate change and cause other people and species to die. What do you make of this? I mean, you've said psychiatric, you've, you've talked about political. What do you make of this moral failure? Why? I mean, we're pretty successful. Like, we're the best monkeys ever. Um, why are we choking on this one? Well, I, um, uh, a lot of uh, the problem revolves around the issue of externalized costs. Uh, many costs, uh, like paying for damages that you, that you accrue, just isn't in your power bill. Um, nothing for you about the six cents a kilowatt hour that you pay uh, deals with the uh, consequences of your behavior. So that's why our uh, that's why our nonprofit had the slogan, uh, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, market uh, solutions for environmental problems. Uh, most of these are market driven because you can do damage without being liable for it. So that's how the blindness and the psychiatric stuff happens is due to, like, perceptual blindness. But we, we, I mean, our provincial government has just handed out, uh, they, they pay $250 million a year to subsidize fracking, and they've handed out $6 billion in handouts to Royal Dutch Shell uh, to uh, do this. So it seems like we're doing it even when it's more expensive to do it. Oh, you know, there ought to be a law against governments losing money, I have to tell you this. Uh, it's, it's actually fairly common uh, for governments uh, uh, to, you know, be the lapdogs of industry uh, and lose money, lose taxpayer money. But like I said, you know, market forces would would fix this all up. If you actually had, if you're actually liable for your consequences, then it wouldn't matter how foolish your government was, really. In the Guardian Weekly, called "What if Canada had spent two hundred billion dollars on wind energy instead of oil?" Yeah, this uh, this does seem to be the question. It's a question, of course, we're gonna uh, we're gonna continue asking on this show, and uh, hopefully, in the uh, uh, later in the year, we'll have you um, we have we'll have you back to continue discussing this. I want to thank you very much for uh, for coming on, Scotty. This is much appreciated. Well, my pleasure entirely. All right, so that was uh, Scott Davis. Uh, he um, has uh, he his books, Micro Hydro, Clean Power from Water, and uh, Serious Micro Hydro, uh, are both available uh, online. Can be ordered through Amazon or less disgusting companies uh, that uh, vend books. So. Um, let me uh, let me take you into uh, next week's program. Um, we're going to I'm going to continue uh, promoting uh, my friend's stuff. So uh, uh, my pal Jeff Burner, my oldest friend that I've been uh, organizing with since we were five, uh, is uh, coming up to Prince George to do his highly distinctive. Um, 
punk klezmer accordion uh, show uh, over Thanksgiving weekend. Uh, we're going to be promoing that show, and we're going to be playing some of Jeff's music and hearing his distinctive um, opinions about politics, the arts, and culture on our show next week, along with a representative from Theatre Northwest who uh, have uh, who are bringing him up here for his Thanksgiving weekend show. So uh, once again, we've gone hard on the politics one week. We're going to step back a little bit and uh, dive back into our arts and culture material uh, when we return uh, next Monday. So thanks for tuning in. This is Stuart Parker on the Monday edition of After Nine.